Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest insights, news and discoveries from researchers and academics at the University of Glasgow's College of Arts. Today, we're delighted to welcome Scottish author and poet, Dr. Oliver K. Langmead to the podcast. You may already be a fan of Oliver's work. He is the author of Birds of Paradise and Glitterati, both of which are out now and available at bookstores, as well as his long-form poem, Dark Star, which featured in The Guardian's Best Books of 2015. Oliver also holds a doctorate in fine art from the University of Glasgow and is now a lecturer in creative writing at the University of Lancaster. We're really excited to be talking to Oliver today about his doctoral thesis work, in which he shares with us his experience as resident writer at the European Space Agency's Astronaut Centre in Cologne, not to mention an introduction to his space poetry. Hi, I'm Oliver Langmead, also publishing under the name Oliver K. Langmead. I'm an author of several books of fiction and poetry specialising in cross-genre genre stuff, science fiction, fantasy, mostly, with unusual influences. At the University of Glasgow, I'm a DFA student who has handed in his thesis, Viva pending any day now. My thesis uh, is about space poetry. I've written a thesis about space poetry. It is a creative thesis, which means that uh, the first half of it is a... It's, it's meant to be a novel, but I've done a book-length poem uh, called Calypso. And the second half is a creative non-fiction account of my time at the uh, European Astronaut Centre in Cologne called Terranauts. Calypso poem is about terraforming. And ecological philosophy, it's, it has a lot of influences from a lot of strange places. My agent has described it as if Homer gave writing a Jeff Vandermeer or Adrian Tchaikovsky book a go. It is about terraforming. It's about a interstellar generational ship traveling to a barren new world to make it habitable for human life, which is what terraforming means. It's to make another world Earth-like, so that people can live on it. And it uses perspective in a, in a lot of ways. It, it focuses on small, everyday, mundane things, as well as enormous planet, planetary scale things. Congratulations on handing your thesis in. This podcast episode has come at quite a prevalent time, given the state of affairs the world is in. So, um, yeah, is anything attracted to you this in particular? Well... Writing this thesis, where did it come from? Space poetry. Uh, I first started writing my first published space poem, as it were, science fiction poem, back in 2013, so nine years ago now, where I had an idea for a science fiction novel and I wanted to do to try some things with it. I was part of a creative writing emlet and decided, you know what, I've just been reading Paradise Lost. Let me try writing this in verse. And that first experiment was terrible. It didn't work at all. It was dreadful. But there were enough uh, people on that course who were encouraging me, saying there was something there, something interesting, that I gave it another go. And I did. And the result was actually quite interesting. Uh, it was a strange blend of genres, the, the epic and uh, science fiction noir. 
And I spent several months after that writing and finishing writing that poem, a book length page turner poem. And it, yeah, it, it found a publisher. It was published. It, it was, tra- it's been translated. It sold film rights for a little bit. That was fun. It did really well. And people responded really well to it. So when I came to thinking about what I would like to do a thesis on, creative thesis at the University of Glasgow, I thought I would take everything I'd learned from that first poem called Dark Star and try some, try and push myself with it, take the form, try new things with it, see what I could write, not with the goal of just writing a poem, but writing the best poem that I could. And the result is Calypso, which I think pushes what I did with Dark Star way, way further. And is is actually a fairly ambitious project in that it's a, a science fiction retelling of Milton's Paradise Lost. But I, I like how it's turned out. It, it's, I think it does some interesting and unusual things. I think one of the things that certainly non-experts maybe think about with fantasy and sci-fi is you tend to think of these amazing and like fantastical alien worlds, especially with space travel. And obviously you get things like media, like Star Trek, Star Wars, and you've got these pre-established planets and they're completely different. Whereas one thing that stood out to me when I was reading Calypso was one of the lines that you wrote was a mirror of Earth. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that and sort of like the idea of creation or recreation and exploration there. Were these similar ideas that you encountered when you were at the EAC or when you were running your workshops as well? Or is this something that came to you from something else? Funnily enough, I think the idea of making new Earths, the big question there of colonialization, of uh, colonizing new places and what that does. Typically speaking, the, the colonizers bring with them all of their own culture, and they impose their culture on the place that they're colonizing, which is a major theme of the poem. It's, it is interesting because Mars is presented as just another Earth. That's what disappoints one of my principal characters. He doesn't like that it's just another Earth, but that's, that's what happens. You go to Mars, you make it Earth-like, it, it becomes another Earth. So the idea, his idea, and the inspiration behind the Calypso going out among the stars is that he would like to try and create a new type of human that doesn't have those same influences, that, isn't, that, that don't come uh, pre-colonialized to let them construct their own culture, which brings with it its own massive set of questions, right? The main character of Calypso is a colonial ethicist. And her argument is that uh, creating completely fresh humans who have no idea who or what they are is irresponsible in that having hundreds of years of human history gives you something to learn from. It it lets you look back on your mistakes instead of letting them make all the same mistakes again. So it's an an interesting sort of uh, tension there. That comes from, in turn, the idea of forbidden knowledge. So the tree of knowledge in Milton's Paradise Lost, the way Lucifer uses that and and the the downfall of mankind, as it were, from that knowledge. So, yeah, there's a lot of lot of themes and stuff thrown in there. But, yeah, I, I think it comes from ideas about colonization and sort of what that does to a place. 
think you've actually preempted some questions that I was going to save to the end, but let's pull them forward now. Why not? <laughs> there are several lines that stood out to me, actually, and I've got reams of notes about them. <laughs> but there's one that really struck me. It was like the idea that human history is the landfill. I really liked that use of landfill there. And again, it's something that I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about. The other thing that you said was, I think it was, this was a line from the Herald, it was the idea that they're doing all of this in a, in a misguided and selfish attempt at improving the lives of their children gosh human history is the landfill the baggage we take with us uh, all the rituals and history that we don't learn from that's there the stuff that gets romanticized as we as it moves beyond living memory it was that was a piece of imagery i really wanted in there in the poem it's presented as um on mars there are landfills and the landfills started getting filled up before um, a lot of birds were brought over to colonize Mars, in particular the gulls and the way that, uh, you know, on Earth gulls have been have become creatures of rubbish. They are city birds now. They, they inhabit our landfills. And it was the way that uh, their corruption preceded their birth. So the landfill, all of their weight of history was all, all of the rubbish and nonsense that made gulls into these scavenging city birds um, is all, already there on Mars before the gulls were even introduced. And uh, it was the thoughtlessness of introducing uh, this species without really thinking about that. And yeah, I, I, I suppose the, the, the interesting thing about the Herald story, so the, Herald's, the Herald is... The angel, the equivalent of the angel who tells Adam about the future of mankind, well, the, the war in heaven and the future of mankind. And the war in heaven in Calypso is presented as two different sort of sects of, of the generational crew who split off. One who believes that it is their job to uh, fulfill the original plan to uh, create new species of humans to inhabit the earth and another half who ask what about us what are we, there is no part of this plan for us and our children our entire role is is as custodians for these uh, new humans what about our happiness what about the happiness of our children which is an interesting one i i, I think again that comes a lot from uh, paradise lost that's a uh, this, the the supposed selfishness of Lucifer, who I think is a very compelling character. Well, Milton Rodeson is a very compelling character. And uh, his, his question of what about me? You know, what about my happiness? And it's interesting to see how that unfolds as part of the poem. Again, just kind of exploring the idea of sort of like humanity, just step back a wee bit. I thought you raised a lot of questions about humanity and sort of where we are, where we're going. And another that stuck out to me was the idea of the characters being registered do not enhance i really love that there's an extraordinary paper i read that is somewhere in my bibliography <laughs> i think the title was something like what do we owe the gods i'm very interested in posthumans which is a whole thing i have written a posthuman character as part of calypso she has been enhanced in a way that makes uh, the protagonist question whether or not she is even human anymore, uh, which brings us to the question, what does it mean to be human? Catherine, the post-human, answers, I don't think it matters. 
And I, th- I think she shares my kind of point of view on it. Uh, so we, we're, we're sort of entering an age of human enhancement. There's the question of what, you, what do we even mean by enhancement? Is, is wearing glasses enhancement? Is wearing shoes enhancement? In Calypso, I'm exploring more medical enhancement, which is things like bones hardened so that they can't break anymore the body enhanced so that it can't produce cancer cells, things like that. Catherine represents almost the apex of that. She's been enhanced to beyond maybe those simpler medicinal things. And yet she says, I don't think it matters whether, whether or not I'm human. I'm kind of of the same opinion there is there is an extraordinary paper which I will have to look up the the citation for I must have got the title wrong which is about what it means to be human what what are we going to owe these post-humans and it, it it comes to comes to the conclusion that maybe it doesn't matter whether or not something or somebody is human or not that the more important question is a question of personhood whether or not a um, person, whether or not a human or a non-human exhibits qualities of personhood. I don't know, that, that feels good to me. That gives us a lot more leeway to think about enhancement, not in terms of purity, who is the purest human, who is the most human, but in terms of uh, a minimum bar or, or of, are they a person anymore? Uh, which which is very interesting to apply in terms of non-humans as well, which sort of leans more into my work into um, anthropomorphization and, you know, what, what are the limits of personhood? But I think that's a whole different question that I'm not sure I answer with Calypso. But I'm actually really glad that you mentioned Catherine there as well. I wonder if we could maybe chat about her for a little bit. I got the sense that you quite enjoyed really writing Catherine's perspective compared to some of the other characters it's quite interesting to read as a reader because you've got the verses changing shape. And I think there's almost like multiple voices woven in there with her. And I just wondered how you felt about writing Catherine, but also I think Rochelle uses the term barren quite a lot, which I thought was quite an interesting counterpoint to Catherine, who's just got so much life and colour and a lot of visceral imagery in there as well. Yeah, so Calypso uh, uses multiple different verse forms. Uh, Each verse form is tailored to character. Rochelle, the principal character, uses uh, four-line stanzas of ten syllables each, so it's written in syllabic verse, which gives it a quite a it gives it a relatively formal rhythm without resorting to feet. So there's no dumpty 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 dump there, but there is still a rhythm there. It's just a bit subtler. There there are three other principal characters, each with their own verse form. Catherine is probably the most uh, free, I suppose, being post-human. Hers is concrete in verses that resemble waveforms, which I thought was a lovely way of uh, thinking about uh, fluctuating thoughts and the way music looks when it's on SoundCloud. You know, it's that waveform sort of look. There's something uh, organic there that I really liked, unlike the more formal characters. There is a character called the Herald, for instance, who uses a certain amount of strict pentameter it gives it a formal rhythm that gives it a, a strange sort of monotony. But otherwise, the characters in general tend to be engineered towards making the poem a page-turner poem. It's the kind of poem you can read like a novel. You can flick through the pages. And the way Catherine's written, I, I agree. She doesn't use full stops. 
She has an entire chapter to herself, more than 5,000 words long, that's all one sentence, which makes it flow very, very quickly. It's unceasing. It's the unfettered thoughts of a post-human, I suppose, and then her relationship with her task and her transformation, because she is a key part of transforming the barren world that Rochelle keeps uh, referring to. It was really fun coming up with the different tailoring the verse forms to each character so that they represented their voice. It's an extension of, uh, there's the idea of voice in prose, of making it so that a character's voice leaps off the page and can be heard in your head. And using different sort of verse forms, the way they look on the page, uh, does really interesting things with voice and changes it in, in really cool ways. Did any character come easier to you? Did their voice come through to you? more than others perhaps so i'll tell you the most difficult one was the herald because the herald uses a certain amount of strict pentameter which i'll read you a little bit the expanse a vibrant void jeweled a glitter with radiant stars of fire with sweet calypso's celestial sea bright with heavenly beacons to guide her so small she spun in interstellar space, traversing the deep expanse for ages, while within her walls generations lived, maintaining her course for that distant sun, where turned the barren new world awaiting, Calypso's verdant cargo so potent. So you can you can hear the, the pentameter there, right? There's a rhythm to it that gives it a dum-de-dum-de-dum. It's a, and writing that is surprisingly difficult i'm not i don't know how no i do know how the likes of shakespeare milton wrote in in that meter because they were brilliant (laughs) clearly trying to do that for an extended amount of time is it's a tangle and you'll be able to hear the difference with catherine who has this sort of fluctuating rhythm and it makes her makes reading her a lot lovelier think of a child born too small its tiny heart trembling, skin so thin its veins are visible, a red wrinkled thing, helpless and dying, needled and cocooned, we were saved and augmented, our fluttering moth-wing heart given blue whale strength so that our blood became ocean blood washing waves through us. There's a lot less of the strict meter there, but you can feel it sort of building there and then it, there's an ebb and flow to it as the verses sort of carry on. In terms of ease of writing, I think writing Rochelle is probably the easiest because she's the closest to prose. And because I'm well, I was well practiced with writing syllabic verse in the way that she's written. She represents the, the, the your bog standard human in that way. She is a, a, the, the core narrator who holds the rest together. And her, the verse form is one that I used to use with Dark Star. So again, the, the four line stanzas, 10 syllables per line. It gives her a certain, a, a certain rhythm. The Calypso is a grand cathedral. When the sun is out, a hollow eclipse. And after dusk, a glittering circlet, crowning the dark heavens, crowning the stars. So that's one verse, and you can sort of feel the way that that operates. And even though it feels a little bit strict to begin with, it's one of these things that you probably found when you start to get into it and get get into her voice and read it, it becomes such a flow. It's very easy to read on the page. And the entirety of Dark Star, my first poem, was written in that way. I think it's easiest because... I practiced so much with Dark Star. Funnily enough, because it's 10 syllables per line, 
to this day, I still count the syllables on my fingers when I'm writing, which is really fun, right? You never, you never quite learn. I, and I'd be fascinated to know how, you know, the likes of Milton did that. Did he just get it into the rhythm so much that he ne- didn't need to count anymore? Could he feel the lines? Could he feel the meter there? Really interesting. Okay, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. And I think also it's kind of reassuring to hear that you know, you're counting on your fingers as well. Because yeah. I'm sure there are a lot of readers and also a lot of students who, particularly if they're just getting into studying poetry or reading or writing poetry, it's something they're perhaps struggling with. So to know that someone who's doing their PhD, who is a published writer, no less, <laughs> is also doing it, I think it's quite a reassuring thing to hear. There's there's something neat about the syllabic verse, right, in the... Um, and this, this happens quite a lot. This happened a lot with Dark Star. A lot of people read it through without realizing what it was. So reading through the, the Slavic verse without realizing that uh, there was 10 syllables in every line in the poem, which I, I, I found to be really interesting. It shows that what I was doing with it was working because it's a page turner poem. You can read it like a book. You really can go through the whole thing without realizing that it is uh, that the, the syllables are so exact. To this day, a, a friend of mine managed to somehow hunt down and find a nine-syllable line in Dark Star that haunts me to this day. Because my poor copy editor for that novel went through, really did count every single line and highlight the ones that were one syllable short, one syllable too long. But this this one that slipped through it bothers me. So you're saying that readers should now go through Calypso and look for that as well? I mean, they're very welcome to, but there there are more than 7,000 lines in Calypso. So good luck, basically. <laughs> so to go back a little bit, you mentioned Rochelle kind of being your, I think the phrase you used was bog standard? Bog standard human. <laughs> yep, yeah, bog standard human. <laughs> and you kind of touched on writers like Milton, like Shakespeare. But one instance that I quite liked that, Rochelle mentions she's reminiscing about her childhood and I think it was a cartoon and a Mm. wizard's magical garden Mm -hmm. and I thought that was a really cool almost universal experience for us media consuming humans is there anything like that for you as a writer that kind of either shapes your writing and your practice in that way I funnily enough I think the best answer I can give you for that is for a thesis that is very concerned with science, the future of humanity, with science fiction. I don't really come from a background of science fiction. It's only in recent years that I've been starting to read a lot more science fiction than I, than I was brought up with than I, than I have been, typically speaking. And this, this probably comes through quite clearly in, in the poem. I come from more of a background of fantasy. So it's, you know, uh, growing up with the Philip Pullman, the, the Terry Pratchett, Brian Jacks, all of these uh, terrific fantasy authors. Um, and the influence there, I think, I think is fairly explicit in, in Calypso. Calypso is set, in, uh, set post-Mars colonization, so post-Mars terraforming at the point where hum- humanity's um, science and scientific achievements are becoming indist- indistinguishable from magic. There's a lot of stuff in there that feels very strange and uh, new weird almost. Catherine's relationship with her body and the planet and the terraforming 
feels quite magical, even though, even though, you know, it's, it's waved away as this is part of the terraforming process. This is strange. Uh, I think that's what said. Uh, Mars took many generations. What we do here is far quicker and far stranger. So yeah, you'll see those influences from fantasy, from like those fantasy TV series, the, the, the Wizard's Magical Garden. That wasn't written about any particular uh, cartoon, but there is some, I think you're right, there's something universal there we can all relate to we've all seen those strange sort of children's cartoons that feel magical realist almost there there's something surreal about them and in the way that they operate there are a couple of sections where you talk about food and the plant life with science fiction and fantasy you've got this idea of these fantastical worlds and exploration and finding something magical these people have come so far and they've got these really hollow and unrewarding experiences, particularly with the food and the surroundings. So there, there are two sets of people aboard the Calypso on this journey across the stars that takes hundreds of years. Faster than light travel has not been invented or is impossible. The majority of the crew are generational, whereas the principal characters are put in stasis and awoken at the arrival of the planet to a completely different crew because they, they've been down the generations since they left. So it was a real challenge thinking about how humans would start off quite familiar, change down generations with the influences that they have because they're on a starship. It's difficult for them to create new culture for a while, I had the idea that uh, I would invent a new language for them, which was which was fun. It was going to be a, a cross between a sort of future English and programming language, because I figured their main influence is going to be the Calypso itself. That's how that's what's going to change their culture. Absolutely failed to write that. I couldn't make it work. A big part of the process of, of writing is trying things and then failing. But that, that's along the the lines I was thinking. Otherwise. They have sort of cultural memories of beloved things of Earth, of things that appeal to them. So the idea of parks, being able to go outside in a park, going into a busy human city and the ways that they adapt those concepts as part of their developing culture, trapped, as it were, on an interstellar starship. So they project a busy city around themselves. They paint the walls to make them look like gardens. They construct elaborate menus with their limited uh, recycled foods to try and make it as appealing as as their, their cultural memories suggest they should be. There's not very much in the way of digital interactions. It's not, it's all very visceral. It's all very tactile. And there's an extra tactility there in the way that they inhabit and and uh, sort of live in their ship, especially with things like the food, because food, there's a tactility there through the flavours, these horrible flavours. It gives you something visceral, again, to think about in terms of this ship and the way it is, the way it smells, the way, the way it looks, the way it sounds, these huge echoing, the huge echoing halls of the Calypso. I think it'd be really good to talk about the second half of your thesis. What I'll do is I'll pass over to... Grace, because we are both very nosy and we'd love to know more about astronauts. So if you just want to go ahead by sort of introducing your trip, why you went, what you hope to achieve from it. Sure thing. So back in, it was late 2018 now, I went uh, on a three-week writing residency 
to the European Astronaut Center in Cologne, which is run by ESA, the European Space Agency. It's where all of their the European astronauts train, and it's where they work in between their trips up to the ISS, the International Space Station. And yeah, I, I went there for a lot of reasons. For a start, because I could, <laughs> just to see what was going on there, because it's a really cool thing to do. Go, go and hang with some astronauts and astronaut trainers for three weeks. And I, I, I made the right contacts to be able to do that. It, it's a lot of luck, honestly. But also because it it's something I'm very interested in. Uh, as, as Calypso sort of demonstrates, I'm very interested in humans going to new worlds for the first time. I think it comes from the, the fact that, um, in fact, all of us here, we were born after the moon landings. And we're, we're born too early to see the Mars, Mars landings. So we're sort of stuck in between. I've been writing uh, and running creative writing workshops that let people explore that idea of, of stepping foot on new worlds for the first time. I'm really very, very interested in the idea. Uh, and, and they were inspiring. And through the course of that, I met people from ESA working at the Astronaut Center in Cologne. And I told them about my poem. I'm writing Calypso, a poem about landing on new worlds for the first time. And they were interested. I, th- I figured, wouldn't it be cool to go and talk to actual astronauts, write about actual astronauts, the people who in years to come um, with the uh, Orion missions, I think they're called, are going to be landing on the moon. They are going to be stepping foot on a whole new world soon. I mean, we've been there before, but it's been long enough. I think it counts again. That's what I did. I went to Cologne for a few weeks and it, it was a fascinating experience. Met a few astronauts, saw a few more astronauts, met loads of astronaut trainers, and importantly, also met a lot of interns. So the future of manned space flight, the, the next generation of space doctors, as it were, who are looking at ways that not only people can survive in space, which is utterly hostile, but the interesting medicinal applications of things like low gravity. Sorry, I'm immediately leaping towards, this is a cool thing that is happening there. But yeah, that, that's, that was my reasons for going. It's, it was a little bit complicated, but a, a big part of it is because I could. Creative Scotland were generous enough to fund it. I went with the idea that I would write some poetry there, that I would write poetry about astronauts, astronaut trainers, about manned space flight, about um, the ecological benefits of it or, or lack thereof, and came away instead with so many notes about everything. I just wrote everything down. And it turned instead of a poetry collection into a, a creative nonfiction book called Terranauts, which is about um, the attitudes of astronauts and uh, astronaut trainers and people who work with astronauts towards the planet Earth and how they feel about it on a planetary sort of scale. And that sounds like a fantastic trip. And I also can't really think of anyone who would turn it down. At the start of your thesis, you write about Frank White saying in Overview Effects, he writes about the profound psychological effect that seeing the Earth from space has on astronauts. When you were talking to them or interacting with them, what was the most, or overall from your visit, what was the most surprising thing you learned? In terms of the overview effect, so the overview effect is very interesting. It's the idea, Frank White comes out with 
people who have been to space and have seen the Earth from space are more likely to be ecologically minded, so they care more, more about the Earth. They're more likely to be internationalist, so they can see the lack of borders from space. They're more likely to take ideas about the Earth as a whole. If we had more people looking at the Earth from space, we'd be a better species. We'd be more ecologically minded, we'd save our planet, there'd be less wars, our politics would be kinder, we'd have this overview. I thought he's pretty convincing. I have, just like in Terranauts, the book, I have some issues with his idea, with his philosophy, but there's something convincing there. Most of the astronauts I spoke to have very different accounts and experiences of what you might consider the overview effect. Some of them think there is merit to the idea. Some of them think there's not much there, that it's just an idea that they didn't really experience the profound thing. So Frank White thinks that as soon as you see the Earth from space, click, something switches in your brain and you your philosophies change, your outlook changes. Whereas what I posit from my experiences, my interviews with astronauts and astronaut trainers is that it's more of a process. It's a long-term thing. It's not just see that one instance. It's being involved in the space industry and just thinking about the Earth in terms of it as a whole has a, it has more of a profound influence than that one moment. So I think that was the most surprising thing, just the rich sort of disagreement between astronauts about their experiences. And I think it gets more profound if you start talking to NASA astronauts and Roscosmos cosmonauts as well. Lots of different experiences. That sounds fascinating. So just as a last question, from all your research, what you know now, would you go into space if you were given the chance? And if so, is there a specific area that you'd like to visit? So I met a terrific guy, and I write about him, called Horman Charles, who talks about, he. This, this is a guy who really wants to go to space. He's terrific, and I, the, I really hope he makes it through this next round. I hope he gets to go to space because he really wants to. He did the Mars 500 project, which was him and a bunch of other folk got put in a capsule for 500 days to simulate going to Mars and back. And his experience was, yes, I I would absolutely go to space. I would absolutely go to Mars, but only if I could come back afterwards, because it's a tough job. And being able to come back to Earth is it makes it all work in my head. But there are people out there, a very small amount of people who would go to space and stay there, who would go to Mars and colonize it. Myself, I don't think I want to go to space. I don't need that experience. I'm happy to stay on Earth and imagine and look up and watch the accounts of other people. I've been very excited recently just watching the live streams of the Dragon modules going up into space which have very, very clear live streams. It's part of the SpaceX advertising campaign. And that's enough. I I can't wait. I cannot wait to watch the moon landings in HD. (laughs) I think that's going to be terrific. Same with the Mars landings. I can't wait to watch people landing on Mars for the first time in high definition to see those those pictures so that we don't have to look back on grainy pictures anymore. I'm happy to stay on Earth and watch and let the people who have spent their entire lives working up to it go. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Oliver. I think we'll be looking at space from a wider perspective now. 
Absolutely. And if you are interested in reading any of Oliver's work for yourself, his most recent novels, Glitterati and Birds of Paradise, and his long-form poem, Dark Star, are all available from bookstores now. If you want to keep up to date with what's coming next from Oliver, you can follow him on Twitter at Oliver K. Langmead, and we'll also include a link to Oliver's website in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts, as well as find out about new episodes of the podcast by following us on social media at U of G Arts, or by visiting www.gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Sia Jackson. Music is Notion by Coma Media. See you next time.